Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Jordan Jarrett Bryan of Channel 4 News, and Tony Hodson of Coach's Voice. Steve Bruce framed his professional epitaph when he spoke of being regarded as a tactically inept cabbage head. No wonder he's considering retirement due to the abuse he and his family received. Football management is a dehumanising business and there will be obvious pressure on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer over the weekend. Mikel Arteta, perhaps next in the firing line, suggests things have to change. Now, Tony, you deal with elite coaches on a daily basis. How, in practical terms, can cruel, often cowardly criticism be dealt with? You can't legislate against the worst aspects of human nature, can you? Uh, no. Uh, morning, by the way. Morning, Jordan. Morning, everyone. Um, it's a really difficult situation. I, I, as you say, I speak to coaches all the time. Um, and uh, thinking about this yesterday, uh, Daryl Clark, who's, who's currently with Port Vale in League Two, um, I asked him this same question, what does he do? And he just said, I just stay off social media. I have no accounts. Don't take any notice of it. Don't listen to the noise. He does his, he does his pre-game interview, does his post-match press conferences, does, does what he needs to do. But other than that, just try to stay as far away from it as possible. That feels like it's a real shame. And I think it's, it's easier for coaches to do that than it is for players. Um, I think there aren't that many coaches with social media profiles. But the reality is, as you say, it, 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 it goes beyond the coaches. It goes to the families. It goes to the friends. Any, people seem willing and they find energy from somewhere to do the research required to find people to send abuse to, which when you think about it is a, is a really scary thought. I, you know, I'm a fan. I occasionally pay my money to go into a game. Um, but I don't, I don't fundamentally believe that that earns me the right to go and watch the game. And as a, as a fan, I think I have a right to have an opinion. Um, and I will share that opinion with my friends or my family or occasionally my own social media following or seven and a half of them. Um, but I don't feel that gives me the right to send personal abuse to the people who are, however the, however the results go, trying their best. And I, I don't know the answer to it. I totally sympathise with the coaches who go through it. I think Steve Bruce was treated pretty poorly um, by, by the Newcastle fans. Frankly, let's be honest about this. They seem to think he should have been winning them titles. They, they seem to feel like he should be doing so much better in a situation that I think we all agree was pretty difficult for the, for the duration. Um, and I don't blame him at all if at the age of 60 or 61 in December, if he decides to, get, to, to call it a day and just enjoys retirement. 
Yeah, I suppose we we're trying to put we're trying to nail jelly to a wall here, aren't we, um, Jordan? Because we can all talk about acceptable levels of comment, but how can we control those levels? Well, when I read the or watched and and read the statement that Steve Bruce had put out, and it, it really really affected me and touched me. And allow me for a second as a slight um, aside. I'm, it, it made me think of the documentary I watched a couple of years ago after the the passing of the TV presenter Caroline Flack and the response that came off the back of her taking her own life. And in the documentary, it spoke about a lot of the abuse and a lot of the judgment and criticism that she had to face by being in the public eye. And it, it, made, it made me think of that. It made me think to myself, uh, you know, as Tony says, I think there's an element of entitlement that the public have got they shouldn't have. The entitlement that I have the right to say whatever I want about about any individual that I don't like or the job that they are doing that I don't particularly like. Now, I like to look at myself and ask myself, okay, have I been a part of this 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 new wave of bile coming from football fans and people working in the media? And I don't think I have. I've never tweeted for somebody. I've never tweeted abuse at anybody. It's not the person that I am. But I have tweeted for people to be sacked. I remember the back end of Arsene Wenger's last five years, I was tweeting that I thought he should have been sacked. And I, I thought to myself this week, that's not right. For, I think we have to, because sacking happens so often in football and more so than any other industry, we forget and I think we're almost desensitised to the idea that sacking is a man losing his job or a woman losing their job. Now, the payoff for these people obviously is a lot more significant than it would be for the, any of the three of us, but it's still somebody losing their job. And again, it made me listen to the comments from Gary Neville this week who spoke about the fact that he will not call for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer or any manager to be sacked. There's something, I think there's a separate discussion there to be had about if you're going to be slightly biased towards a team or an individual, the credibility of your punditry for me is compromised a little bit, but that's a separate discussion. But the humane part of abusing someone and wanting someone to lose their job, I think is something we need to look at and really consider as members of the media, as well as football fans. I'm an Arsenal fan. The last three, four, five years, going back, Una Imre and Mikel Arteta, some of the bile that comes from the fan base towards those managers, I think is unacceptable. The swearing, the cursing, the red facing, the, the, the spit in people's mouths. They get so angry at the job the managers are doing. It makes me think, as, as Tony's saying, if I'm that manager, I, how must that feel? How must that feel if you're an individual that has to go on social media or look at the blogs or read newspaper articles and have people being so mean to you? I just think we need to get to a place where we can criticise people for the job that they're doing without it being it crossing over into a, an inhumane um, exploration of bile and, and vitriol. And to hear Steve Bruce saying that he may walk away from the game, I'm no big fan of Steve Bruce as a manager. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest in that sense. But that's not important. He's a human being and he deserves respect. And I think that he's been massively dis disrespected by the Newcastle fans and I think rival fans as well. Yeah, I just think so So much of the, the criticism is is almost performative you know you've now got you know fan tv where okay they are they are monetizing awful word but you know it's modern football they're monetizing the frustration of, of supporters and it's theatrical and it's just bogus i just want tony if we could to just move on slightly to to look at oligonia solskjaer in the round if you like 
Um, you know, in one way, isn't he a product of a system without consistency? You know, let's let's be honest here. His principal consider sorry, his principal qualification for the job was his status as a club legend, and and probably the fact he was, in terms of his personality, the polar opposite of Jose Mourinho. Uh, in a word, probably yes. I mean, I was thinking about this. It's like. Jamie Carragher's talked about this a lot. He talks about it in relation to, to Frank Lampard going in at Chelsea on the back of one year of management experience, no matter how good a player he was and how popular a figure he was at the club. It's like somebody coming to me, Mike, and saying, I want you to write a book, and my current book total in my life is zero, and then expecting me to write a book as, as good as the ones you do. Um, oh, it's, 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 well, they're okay, I guess. Um, but, it, <laughs> but it's the same thing. It's like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's coaching pedigree is, is, I mean, if you look at the, look at the coaches around him at the top of the table, if we think, if we think in terms of a big four at the moment, we think that Arsenal and Tottenham probably aren't quite there. So the big four at the minute, as they finish last season and probably will this season, the two Manchester clubs, Chelsea and Liverpool, Pep Guardiola, Thomas Kuchel, Jurgen Klopp, look at, look at the achievements that those three guys have made. Compare, and, and the experience they've had in coaching and where they've been and what they've done compared to what Ole, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has. It's not, even, it's not even close. So why on earth would you expect this guy to come into a job? No matter what players he has, what, what, what resource he has, why on earth would you expect him to come in and do as good a job as those guys are and genuinely compete? The line we use at Coach's Voice all the time is coaches are at the centre of the game. They're the most important figures in the game. They seem to be the most easily dispensed with because... That's just the culture of the game, and it's easier to get rid of one coach than 25 players. But the reality is, these guys are incredibly important. They set the tone for the club, and he just doesn't have the same background. He doesn't have the same pedigree as those around him. So what, what do people expect? He, he's, Carragher says he's done pretty well. I think he's done pretty well. Will they win a Premier League with Solskjaer in charge? Probably, I, I'd be amazed if they did against the, the competition out there at the moment. So in a way, I kind of, again, same with Luke Bruce, I feel a bit sorry for him. Because in my view, he just isn't at the level he, he needs to be to compete. And that's not necessarily his fault. I was talking this morning, Jordan, to a leading coach. And the theory we discussed was actually, ultimately, the coach is, is powerless, especially during a game. The game's about players. And in that context, are you looking for more leaders on the pitch at Old Trafford? Uh, yes, I think you are. Um, I think it's a problem that's kind of permeated the game for many, many years. Um, it's one of the things that I enjoy less about football nowadays, and I'm I'm not even that old, and I'm sounding quite old when I say that, <laughs> but um, the, the lack of characters and leaders um, in, in, the, in the playing staff that I just don't think we see as much as now as we did 10, 15, 20 years ago. And I think that's probably a wider link to society. And I think leaders generally, I think we're lacking in politics and in, in media and those things anyway, in business. But yeah, I, th I think there's definitely, whilst I agree with Tony that I, I just don't think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is of the level to be doing the job that Man United require him to do. I do commend them, as I, as I do my club, for taking a bit of a gamble on, on Mikel Arteta and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. I think it's, I think... One of the things I was criticising Premier League teams previously for doing was the rotation of the same old managers doing the same old jobs. It's like, well, we've got to break away from that and bring through some new young talent. 
But I think they've gone too far the other way now with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. I think that he he's miles behind being ready. Um, I do think that he's been let down to some degree by his playing staff. I do think some of those players on my radio show, I've been asking the question, because there's only so many times you can ask a question, is Solskjaer good enough? I think the consensus is generally we agree that he's not. Done a good job, but not good enough. Okay, so what? how do we develop that conversation? Are the players doing their bit? And to your question, Mike, I think definitely some of the players are hiding behind the fact that, again, as Tony says, they know that Solskjaer will go before they leave. So there's definitely an element of, you know, uh, lack of responsibility and those players not doing their jobs. I don't completely agree with um, the point you made earlier on about once the game starts, it's, it's all pretty much on the players. I think managers can play a role in game, in getting players to do certain things and change certain ways to change the shape of a game. But I think ultimately Solskjaer can't kick the ball. He can't beat he can't beat the first man with the cross. He can't block the ball. He can't do anything physically on the pitch. So yeah, that is then down to the work in the week. It makes sure that the players know in training what they have to do. So by the time it gets to Saturday, like we see with Liverpool, Manchester City, and even Chelsea, they're drilled and they know what they're doing. That's that's the job, the coach's job in the main. So yeah, I definitely think there's an element of players at United and other clubs letting down their managers by not being the leaders that I think these managers need them to be. I think it's, if I just back back in for a minute, I think I, there's a lot of truth in that. And I think it's interesting that um, we're at a stage now with coaches where we talk about coaches' philosophy so much, their style of play, their model of play, um, the way they set their teams up. And that the, 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 the strong belief that, that the way they do it is the right way to do it. You know, I had a, a Liverpool fan of mine messaging me in the week, so a fellow Liverpool fan messaging me in the week saying, should we be playing a back three? I'm like, well, it's a moot point because Jurgen Klopp's never not going to do that. He, he, he absolutely is set in his formation. I saw West Brom fans in the week tweeting about Valerian Ishmael not changing, bringing on like for like with substitutions in a game they eventually lost about Swansea saying, well, can we not change something? Should we not have a plan B? Should we not be able to... to, to to be flexible. And actually, increasingly, we're seeing with coaches that they believe their way is the right way and they believe they'll stick to it and that their way of doing it will, won't always win them games at the top level. But in the main, I think people like Guardiola and Klopp have probably been justified. The issue with Manchester United is what is that? What is that philosophy? What is their style of play? I think we all agree that when United are at their best, it's when they're counter-attacking on, the, on transition. They've got incredible pace. They've got incredible attackers. When they have the ball, I still don't really know what their plan is. Um, and that doesn't necessarily come from the... And that then goes a step... I'm rambling, I know, but that goes a step back even further. And that comes about recruitment. Mm-hmm. About And this is not Solskjaer. This is, I know we've got Darren Fletcher and, and John Merton now who are in specifically named posts at Manchester United. But that's what, six months ago? Before mm-hmm. then, there was the kind of Ed Woodward reign. Um, where at other clubs, you've got players in there. You've got Chiki at Man City. You've got Michael Edwards at Liverpool. You've got... All sorts of characters who are Brighton's another good example of a team where or a club where this framework exists, where everything is is aimed at one thing, one previously agreed set in stone philosophy or way of doing things that is going to in the end lead to positives on the pitch. And United, they're they're so far behind, and I think that's a problem. And again, that's not necessarily Solskjaer's fault. Yeah, well, yeah. To keep broadening that argument, you know, you look at look at the ownership. Um, you know the Glazers have just siphoned up an, another 160 million dollars. They're brutally detached businessmen. They're they're now looking at cricket and the IPL. Um, but the one thing they do know is they know how to throw 
the fans a bone, don't they? I.e., Cristiano Ronaldo. That interesting looking, Jordan. Looking at the senior management structure at, at United, obviously it's going to change with Edward Wood's departure. But to take Tony's point about recruitment, let's look at Donny Van der Beek. It seems to me he was taken to Manchester United under under false pretenses. Yes, um, I think there's also an element with Donny Van der Beek that. And I could be wrong here, but I wonder if United are signing players now to stop other clubs signing them. I think they got Ronaldo so City wouldn't get him. I think they got Maguire because they knew City was sniffing around him. I think they signed Sanchez again because they thought City were going to sign Sanchez. And I just think to myself, the Donny van der Beek one is so bizarre because it's one thing to sign a player and either play him out of position or play him in the wrong types of games. I've seen that before. I've never seen a team sign a player and just not play him. Just not play him. They're just not playing him. You know, even some of the League Cup games, he's not even playing in those matches. And that for me is is really bizarre. And I, I can't put my finger on as to why that's worked out the way it's worked out. I can only assume that they kind of got excited. Donny van der Beek is, is what I call a system player. He's a, he's a player that he works in a particular setup and structure that I wouldn't say he's the sort of player you build your team around, but you're only going to get the best out of Donny van der Beek if you have a particular setup. And United don't have that setup. And again, to Tony's point, the, 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 the recruitment and the wider philosophy and vision of how Man United wants to play, for me, clearly wasn't laid out when they signed him. Because if you sign him, you sign him as someone that you you know it's going to be an integral cog in how you play football. And you don't just sign Danny Van der Beek and put him in midfield. That's not that's not what he does or did at Ajax. He had a very specific role that was very effective. And I think they've killed his career. I think they've killed his... I think they have, because I think he'll, go to, he'll, he'll move on to another club. But the momentum that he built up at Ajax has been one of the, one of the most interesting and hottest prospects in European football. That's gone now. And I think now that any any team that signs him is going to, unless he goes back to Ajax, he's going to have to change his game to fit into that team, which I think is very unfair on, on him. So I think it's one of the most bizarre transfers I've, I've ever seen. And I think it's, it's a wider, it's part of a wider problem at United of, I just think being headless chickens and not understanding what it is they want to do. Because if they did, they A, wouldn't have signed him or B, would have signed him and he'd be playing every single game because he would have been he would have been an important cog in a system that was laid out before he even arrived. Yeah, I agree. It was baffling, absolutely baffling and damning as well. Um, Tony, take your red shirt off for a second, please. <laughs> <What>? um, <laughs> let's, let's have an objective view of this, please. Um, the game on Sunday, um, logically, um, United will struggle to match Liverpool's intensity in midfield. United, their defence is an issue. Only one clean sheet in 19 games. Um, do you think this all presages a pretty comfortable Liverpool win? Um, I, uh, as a fan, I hope so. As a as an objective um, journalist, both of those words possibly inverted commas. Um, <laughs> I... Uh, I don't know. I mean, as we talked, talk, you know, United are most effective on the counter attack, and Liverpool will will push on. We won't go. We're not quite Manchester City, but you know, the fullbacks will push on. There will be spaces wider the centre backs on transition. We'll commit numbers forward. Um, Fabinho playing being available for Liverpool is a positive because I, I think 
when he doesn't play, I think we're a bit more vulnerable in that in that in that defensive midfield position. Nobody else plays it quite like him. Um, but United, and, and you know, I think Marcus Rashford particularly has had good games against Liverpool on transition. You know, they they, they get the ball, they play wide wide of the centre backs on you know on the counter attack, let the guys and you know Rashford, Sancho, Greenwood. These guys are they, these guys are rapid, um, and they they can cause Liverpool problems without question. Um, uh, Rashford was an interesting one. He he missed. He missed a few chances again at Atalanta, but he, but he looked really sharp to me. Actually, mm. the goal he did score was was really well taken. Um, he he's looked very fresh. fluid, didn't he? He did, he did, and I think he's somebody who's given Liverpool problems before. And you can, you know, and Liverpool, you know, you only need to look at a lot of United's results under Solskjaer against the bigger teams. They often perform pretty well. They've they've beaten City numerous times because teams when teams come onto them, they have more threat. If Liverpool does Klopp decide to just maybe not not be quite as gung-ho, maybe be a bit more conservative in possession and just and just tie United out. I, I, I don't know. But there are def- if I'm a United fan, there are, I can definitely see ways in which they can they can get in behind Liverpool. Uh, just a couple of quick things. Um, just briefly going back to, you mentioned the Glazers earlier on, Mike, and the, their ownership of the club. One of the things that I was thinking about after the United's win in midweek was uh, knowing the Americans that I know and how they approach sport, for them, the entertainment level is just as important as as the winning element of, of competition. And I wondered to myself, because I've, I've got this theory in my head that the Glazers aren't interested in necessarily winning Premier Leagues and Champions League. As long as they get top four and the money's coming in, the business model's tick, ticking over, they're happy and Oli will be safe. But I wonder if that game on Wednesday was a win for them, not because they necessarily won the match, but because of the way they won the match. And, the, you know, the, the big sign of Ronaldo, you know, in the last few minutes scoring the winner. I reckon that the, 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 the entertainment element is what is, in a weird way, keeping Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in a job. And to bring it to Sunday's game, like, same, same theory from me. I wonder if they want to win the game, of course, of no doubt. But what they would want as equally as important as a win is an entertaining game. So a 3-3 to most Man United fans is like, oh, 3 3 onto Liverpool. We, we want to we want to beat Liverpool. But to the Glazers, it might be like 3 3. That's that's that, that's 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 what we want. That's 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 amazing. That's brilliant. So the entertainment element, I think, is is what the, the owners, I think, may be looking towards as much as the win. And just secondly, Ronaldo. I just recorded a podcast just before we started this recording, and I asked a United fan. And it might seem like a stupid question, but I ask a lot of stupid questions. Is your do you have a better chance of winning on Sunday without Ronaldo? And he looked at me like like I was an idiot at first, and then I think he got why I was asking the question. Against Liverpool, you're going to have to run, you're going to have to work, you're going to have to match their work ethic. Can you afford to carry any players? even albeit the greatest player of all time. And he said, no, we have to play Ronaldo because he's that guy that can take a chance. But And Solskjaer won't drop him because he's not that guy. But I wonder if there's something in Ronaldo actually being the best and worst thing for United in this game on, on, on Sunday. There's Jordan Jarrett Bryan there, folks, the hardest working <laughs> man in journalism. Um, <laughs> not about that, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I suppose, though, these games are emotionally driven, aren't they? They're tribal occasions, Tony. Um, I just look at the, the front, Liverpool's front three, 14 goals in four games between them, and I can't see that defence coping with them. No. <laughs> you would think so. And like you say, their, their, recent, um, their recent clean sheet record is really, really poor. Um, it's too early in the season to say what kind of impact 
uh, Varane's absence will have. I think we haven't seen enough of him to see, but I think we, we've seen enough of Lindelof over the years to know that um, he's probably not truly elite level centre back. Harry Maguire, um, I know he scored on 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 Wednesday, but he's still easing himself back. You know, I think generally accepted he was brought back too early, so still won't be firing all cylinders. Um, and yeah, you're right. You know, it'd be really interesting to see what he does in midfield. Um, I mean, again, this, this is the thing with United, isn't it? They play different players. You get a different team. You know, Liverpool's four-three-three. You know, different players can slot into. They they all know what their roles are. You know, suddenly, does he play? What does he do with Pogba? Does he does he play two defenders? Does he play Fred and McTominay? Does he play Pogba on one of them? It, it, it's a different setup, and certainly defensively. I mean, I don't know. As a Liverpool fan, you don't want Pogba playing because his range is just so superb and, you know, he can cause you real damage, particularly on, on transition, like we've said. But defensively, do you want him there? Because he's not going to cover the spaces and track back quite in the way that, that Fred and McTominay will. I don't know. Honestly, Mike, I've seen so many of these games over the years that you just it's so difficult to predict. Um, everything, everything points to a Liverpool win, but this is why we watch football, because we can't be sure, can we? Yeah, my, one of my favourite moments in this fixture is Steven Gerrard getting sent off within about four <laughs> million seconds, <laughs> yeah. uh, which tells you what, what, what sort of occasion hopefully it will be. Um, while we're on the theme of, of, of coaches and managers, Jordan, uh, Thomas Tuchel, I think the, obje- the, the common consensus is that he's an object lesson in the importance of upgrading a manager. Um, are we going to find out a little bit more about him now? He's got to deal with injuries with Lukaku, uh, and Werner, whose hamstring injury is pretty ill-timed, isn't it? It is. It is. Um, what's going to have to happen now is that they're going to have to play Kai Havertz through the middle, which it, we, actually I thought the back end of last season, going into this season or going into the season, I thought that that was going to be the, the, the strategy anyway. I thought they were going to, I didn't think they'd sign another striker. I thought they'd use Havertz as, as a as a force nine a lot more this year than than they have and obviously they've signed Lukaku now so that can't that can't happen but yeah I definitely think we're going to see what he's made of one of the criticisms that I and it's a criticism in inverted commas that I've placed upon Thomas Tuchel at his time at Chelsea in that he's made them so defensive that it's some ways compromised their attacking threat now the stats say that they have got I think the most amount of Different scorers um, in the Premier League, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, Is it there. Thirteen. I think it's thirteen. Yeah, different players have scored goals, and if the, the goals are spread across a team, then great. But I think that that is what I think will stop them in a weird way winning the Premier League this season. And without your two strikers, my I say concern again in very commas. I'm, I'm an Arsenal fan, so I could, couldn't give a damn really. <laughs> but my concern for Chelsea and the, and the fans would be. Would he have to now revert to being more defensive in a way that let's just try and get through this next six weeks without these two players um, as best as possible? Let's just not lose any game. Let's try and just be tight at the back and nick goals and even double down on how defensively solid they ha- that they have been. So I- I'm expecting to see some quiet... Turgid's a bit of a stretch, but some quite stale, uh, defensive, solid performances from Chelsea from this next kind of couple of months because it wasn't free-flowing attacking on the eye anyway as it was with Lukaku and and Werner. Without them, I don't know if it's going to be any better. So we are going to see now how he how he tackles this uh, this dilemma now going forward for the next six weeks without his main two strikers. In that, I think they need to be a little bit more attacking. Well, I think now they may they may actually revert. Go to go to go in the other way. 
Mm, I suppose they're fortunate that they've got Norwich at home on Saturday in the BT Sport lunchtime Oh, game. yeah, that helps, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, that in many ways is the Premier League equivalent of the NFL bye week, <laughs> isn't it? Um, <laughs> in terms of um, opportunities for people to seize, um, Callum Hudson-Odoi, um, Tony, um, came up through that, you know, that generational crop of, of under-17 England players. Um, always seems to be on the edge of a move somewhere, be it Bayern Munich or elsewhere, um, is this probably his last chance to to cement himself as a Chelsea player? Um, that's a good question. Um, I, I, my instinct is that that last chance has actually already gone. Um, he's now a squad player who plays when he's needed or in games where it's convenient for him to play. I think the view, the view from inside Chelsea, as far as I know, is that he's an incredibly talented player. Um, but... He's old. He's probably at an age now where if he, he was if he was going to really impose himself on that on that squad on that team, he'd probably be playing more regularly. Um, the question mark for him is what what does he want to do uh, as a player? I think it was really was like Tuchel played him, didn't he, as, as right wing back in his in his very first game when he, he left Mason Mount out. That was that was the headline. But Hudson Odoi was quietly using that game, and it you look back at that and did you think it was almost Tuchel saying, "Well, show me what you've got." Um, and he did okay actually in that in that, in that game, but he you know. I just think week in, week out, on the training ground, when he's played, he probably hasn't shown enough to convince Tuchel that he's worth keeping with. Um, certainly as a, as a starter, probably very useful. I mean, this, the Chelsea squad is insane. I mean, Jordan's right. There's a, there's a bit of a challenge here without Lukaku and Werner. But the fact that you're talking about, oh, well, let's play Havertz as a false nine. I mean, <laughs> it's, not like he's, it's not like he's short of options. Um, if, if Havertz is your third choice striker, you're not doing too badly, are you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um so I, I think with, with Hudson-Odoi, it's more about him than about the club. What, what does he want to do? Does he want to continue being a squad player who's playing 15, 20 games a season and picking up trophies and medals here or here and there? Or does he want to kick on and become, you know, play 40, 50 games a season in a team where he can have a real impact? So that, that probably falls to him. Mm. It's interesting to see Tuchel playing a bit of fantasy football in midweek, talking about how he'd love to see um, Harland alongside Lukaku, um, yeah, wouldn't we all? Um, more li- more likely to end up at Manchester City, who who play Brighton at the weekend. Uh, Jordan, um, on the same theme of that generational um, group uh, under seventeen level, Phil Foden, um, he's been the star of their season, probably their best player on current form. Um, where's his best position? The fact that I'm not sure anybody knows that, and I include Pep Guardiola in that, I think it is a blessing and a curse. So I I would like him to see him in the role of the David Silva type role, deep line playmaker, where his range of passing, I think, could be a real, real joy to see. Um, I think if you're going to have him in that deep, deeper role, you need the runners, you need you need the players that can obviously make those correct runs. I often think about Meza Ozil, um, his frustration at Arsenal. When I was I was never a Meza Ozil fan, I thought he underperformed massively. But one of my one of my sympathies with Ozil was that I think that he felt that players weren't often on his level, so he'd want to make a pass. But the you know the, the Giroud's and the Awobis, with all due respect, they just wasn't reading them and making those. But I and I think Phil Foden needs to have players around him, and I think at England and at City, he does have those players that can that can make those runs. Uh, Sterling for club and country, your Canes, your Rashfords, your Bernardo Silvers, your your, your Jesuses, Jesuses even. 
Um, I think wide though is where he's playing a lot more, where he can actually dribble more and run at run at defenders a little bit more and cause a bit more havoc. Um, but but I personally would prefer him, especially for England. I think England need that player at the World Cup next year that can take the ball on the half turn on the halfway line and start moves. You know, your, your, your Santi Gazzola's, your David Silva's, your, your De Bruyne's. I think that's a player that England are definitely missing. So with my England hat on, I would like to see him in that deeper role in maybe as part of a three. Um, I know Southgate tried uh, him, Foden and Rice in the last international game and it, it got criticised. It didn't work. I would try it again. I would definitely try it again because I think there's something in those two eights role uh, going forward. But I, I think he's been played more so as a wide player running and cutting in. But I personally would like to see him in a more deeper role, getting the ball and really setting up moves. Mm. When we look at City we, we and we look at their strengths, of which there are many, um, what about at fullback or nominal fullback, I suppose we should say? You know, Cancelo's exclusion from the last Champions League final seems even more bonkers as we go as we go on um Kyle Walker is so often written off for club and country yet he still bounces back is that an area you know we look at Liverpool's fullbacks for instance Tony and we, and we think you know well they are key components did Cancelo and Walker get the credit they deserve I don't know I don't know speaking from my own I mean, again, the way City use their fullbacks is so different to the way almost anyone else uses their fullbacks. I mean, Cancelo is a an unbelievably creative footballer who, you know, <laughs> doesn't really look or play like a fullback in the traditional sense. Um, you know, he's he, he pops up in positions. I mean, we we know that Pep likes to use one of his fullbacks inverted and to, and to play in a more central role as a creative player. You know, even Zinchenko used to be played like that when he was was playing, and he's, he's not even in the same parish as. Cancelo on the ball, I don't think. Um, Walker plays a slightly different role, doesn't he? Where, where he comes in and often plays as you know, play, then looks like a, the right hand side of a back three in, in possession. What, and then he's, and he's obviously brilliant on transition in terms of just that pace that he still seems to have. It, it doesn't it doesn't seem to matter how old he is; he just seems to be still as quick. Um, and he, I think he takes that as a kind of as his personal pride, isn't he? he never ever wants to get outrun by anyone. Um, hmm. Cancelo is just a wonderful player. I, I, you know, he's not a fullback. I don't, again, the same as Foden. I mean, it's, it's like Pep's dream, isn't it? It's to have eleven players who don't have any positions. <laughs> it just doesn't matter. Just anyone can play anywhere because they're great. I, I, I love watching Cancelo play, and I, for very different reasons, I love watching Kyle Walker play. And I think it's funny, isn't it? Pep, we see, we've seen with Pep. You know, he had a season. Bernardo Silva was for me the, the best player when they won that really close title race with Liverpool, and then seemed to be discarded for much of the following season and actually only came back in last season really because of injuries and was again their best player towards the end of the season. At the moment, Raheem Sterling doesn't seem to be in favour. You know, Pep does have these little stretches where he just doesn't really fancy players. But And that seemed to be at times with Cancelo last season, didn't really seem to, to, to really trust him. I think it's different this season. Obviously, he's slightly restricted in <laughs> the availability of other fullbacks. But uh, Kyle Walker always played, you know? Any big game, Kyle Walker's there. Hmm. Let's look at Leicester, if we could, Jordan. Um, they're at Brentford on Sunday. Um, I think, again, by common consensus, they look to have turned or certainly be turning the corner. Um, is this going to be a bit of a test of um, Brendan Rodgers' tactical nous? Um, you know, there's an obvious incentive to play Pats and Dakar on the back of his four goals in Moscow in midweek. Can he play in the same team as Jamie Vardy? Because they're very similar players. 
I'm not sure he can, Mike. I'm, I don't think he can. Um, and the, the, the dilemma for Brendan Rodgers for me is working out the timing of when to start the Jamie Vardy phase out and the next striker, albeit it could be Dakar, phasing in. Um, and you don't want to get that wrong because I got it wrong last year. I thought that last year was going to be the year that Vardy was going to fade and it was time to then, the transition with Iniacho should have begun. And then he proved me wrong. And then this year again, he didn't start particularly well, but now he's coming to form again. And it's like, okay, he's got another year um, as Leicester's main man. So you don't want to get that timing wrong. I don't think he can get them both in the same team for the exact reason you've given. I think they are very similar. Um, and if you do get them in the same team, you have to drastically then, I think, change your midfield. And I think that he's got quite a set on. Oh, indeed, he's out injured at the moment. But I think he's got a relatively settled midfield and a system there. So I don't think you want to mess with that too much. So I I, I, I would, I would, I don't know is, is, is the answer, but I think that the dilemma he has is working out when to start moving on or phasing out Jamie Vardy and bringing in the next guy. And you, you don't want to get that wrong because you do it too soon, Jamie Vardy might have another six months left in him, but you do it too late and you might not get the guy that you've got under your under your nose missing out on, on a chance to really fill, fill, fill that hole. I always think I always think phasing out great players is a very difficult topic, isn't it? I always think about when Andre Villas-Boas was supposed to be phasing out some of those old Chelsea boys and that didn't go too well for not him, did it? Not at all, not at all. <laughs> I think they phased him out, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. 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 I think phase is probably quite a gentle word for what it actually was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, as you know, we said right at the top of the show, um, uh, Tony, you, know, you do deal with coaches on a, on a daily basis. Um Give me your appreciation, please, of of Thomas Frank at Brentford. You know, obviously they've settled in brilliantly. Um, are we looking here at someone who's, who's, with all greatest respect to Brentford, going to end up at a bigger club? Um, I think that's probably going to happen. I don't see any reason why it wouldn't. Um, again, sometimes you, with guys who come up and do a brilliant job with a with a newly promoted team, they do really well, and then maybe they from a cynical point of view, from their point of view, they should maybe leave on a high and then make that departure sooner rather than later, maybe think that they're going to hang around a bit longer because they're onto something good and it starts to drop and suddenly their, does their does their star start to wane a little bit? It doesn't look like that's going to happen with Thomas Frank. I mean, it's been a, in a strange way, Brentford not going up earlier has probably helped him and helped that squad develop their way of playing, develop their structure, develop, you know, bring their recruitment and build something that meant that when they did eventually get promoted, they're actually ready. I mean, it's, pretty stark the contrast isn't it between how Brentford have adapted to the Premier League with how with how Norwich and Watford clubs who have both been there relatively recently have um, honestly just looks like those two teams are just waiting to go back down again whereas Brentford are you know drawing three all with Liverpool in a game they possibly should have won battering the door down and not quite getting past with Chelsea they've also developed the way they play you know they're, they're, they're not playing exactly the same way they played in the championship they're, they've adapted Thomas Frank is an incredibly clever coach um, he knows the club again, but again, it goes back to that discussion we were having earlier about the structure of the club. It is all everyone knows exactly what everyone's job is at the club, the structure of it, the way it, the, the people use the word project in football now, which is maybe a bit maybe feels a bit pretentious, but it but it's true. You look at you look at what Brentford are. Thomas Frank has clearly got a low load of charisma as well. I mean, we, we're hopefully going to be doing some content with him before long at the coach's voice. Um, it's one I'm really excited about because he clearly has so much charisma, so much talent, so much football knowledge, has built a team there. And the recruitment has been brilliant as well. Um, 
And then you look at someone like Ivan Tony and think, well, they lost Ollie Watkins, who has obviously proven himself a genuine Premier League quality. But the recruitment, again, going back to the point about you made about United, is so clever. And Ivan Tony probably, I'm sure clubs would have been in for him in the summer. He was so good, head and shoulder with any other striker in the Championship last season, but he stayed there because he knows there's something going on there. He may go in the summer, who knows, but the work that Thomas Frank has done at Brentford is just so, so impressive. Tony, can I ask you a question? Um, Do do you think there's an element of a lot of coaches that are doing a decent job at lower, lower clubs in the Premier League of... Everyone seems to be, or is there, everybody's waiting for the Liverpool and the Man City job to come up. Because if we assume that within 18 months, two years, Klopp and Pep are going to move on, is there an element that, that you know, the likes of Potter at Brighton, people talk about, oh, should Potter be looking at Spurs and Arsenal? I'm thinking... If I'm Potter, I'm not gonna. I'm not that far down the list of prospective managers for the for the City job, and and same with Liverpool as well. And you, you were talking about Frank there. I mean, f- from Brentford to City, that may be a leap within even within two years, too too much. But do you get a sense that there's coaches that are kind of just biding their time and just doing a good job, ticking along, waiting for the next eighteen months, two years for when the two big jobs come up? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think that the nature of the honest view is that the nature of football is such that managers don't have time to bide their time. They are they are so intense and focused on the job they're doing. But then you think about the summer, Graham Potter was so heavily linked with Tottenham and it and it didn't happen. And then you think, as you say, why didn't it happen? You know, again, there are, you, who knows? I mean, Potter is part of a really, really defined structure that is basically set up to enable him to do a better job at Brighton. Tottenham, that isn't we all know what you have to do when you go in at Tottenham. Yeah. Um, and, and I think there is a change in, there is a change in the landscape a little bit. So, you know, a couple of years ago, we say, well, there's no chance the Brighton manager is going to be getting the Man City job. Um, but actually the nature of some of these coaches in the Premier League now, people like Potter and Frank, who are respected tactically and technically uh, for the job they've done, not just not just you know not just battling it out. Dare, dare I refer to the kind of job that Steve Bruce has done in, throughout most of his career? Um, the, there is a view, I think, maybe that people aren't necessarily looking overseas quite as much. You know, you think about the really exciting coaches, the, the, the Red Bull model that, that, that Mike and I talked about before with Ralph Ragnar. It seems to be a kind of a constant stream of talented young German slash Austrian managers coming through. Um, and do we look there? But I think for the first time. Those big clubs in the Premier League are starting to look further down the table rather than exclusively abroad. So it'd be really, really interesting to see what happens when when those big dogs you refer to finally leave their position. Mm, well, you know, let's look at Newcastle. Um, I suppose we must. Uh, they're they're at Palace. Palace have got a clear strategy underpinned by their faith in Patrick Vieira. Um, Newcastle, any sense, Jordan, that you know that they know which way they're going? Beyond obviously the interim management of, of Graham Jones, uh, no, <laughs> no, I think it's the short answer to that one. Um, I I don't get a sense they know what they're doing, but that doesn't mean they don't know what they're doing. Um, I'd like to believe though, to counter my point there, that they kept Steve Bruce on for the Tottenham game last Sunday, not out of sentiment, but just out of we haven't got the next guy ready yet, and by letting him go this week they therefore have got the next guy that's going to be imminently appointed. I mean, Fonseca, uh, as, I, as I check it, is the is the current favourite to get the job. Um, 
I, I can't work out if they're going to go one of two ways. If they're going to try and go big early, we've got all the money. We're going to be ambitious early. We're going to try and get a Conte or a Jose or a, we're going to just go. Why waste time? Why waste five, six years in building? Let's just go now. The next two or three windows, we're going to go big. Or if they're going to try and incrementally over the next, the, the Man City way, if you like, we're going to incrementally over the next two or three years build up to the, the, the Pep Guardiola type manager, if you like, in three years' time. So I, I don't get a sense that they know what they're doing as of yet um, because my thinking would be their first priority needs to be staying in the Premier League. I know that's not the, the very fashionable thing to say and suggest, but I don't think it's a given that Manchester City, uh, sorry, Manchester City, Newcastle United stay in the Premier League. So for me, this big project and all this money coming in it's going to be very embarrassing if they're spending that from the championship. So for me, it's about just securing, almost start from next season, just get to next season in the Premier League and then go big. So keeping someone like Steve Bruce, all right, maybe it was getting a bit toxic with the fans in being there, but he, he guarantees you staying in the Premier League at the bare minimum. And if you tell the fans and the players, and again, that could backfire, look, we're keeping Bruce in-house in uh, until the end of the season, then we're moving him on. Everyone knows where they stand. At the moment, it's a little bit all up in the air. And I'm, I'm not, to answer your question, convinced that they have a plan as, a, as of yet. Yeah, you mentioned Jose Mourinho there. I suppose his um, self-projected um, uh, emotional attachment to Newcastle grew a little bit stronger <laughs> with that 6-1 defeat in Norway, didn't it? Um, other, other runners and riders, um, Tony, I suppose Eddie Howe's a club builder. But obviously at a lower level. Um, Roberto Martinez, very fashionable, but is he entirely convincing? You know, we're playing almost transfer bingo with players, our managers here, aren't we? You know, anyone that you would pluck, pluck from, from left field? Well, I, from what I know, and I don't know much, I'm not sure Fonseca is going to be the guy. <clears throat> I... Um, Martinez obviously is interesting because Graham Jones they 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 have a they have a history they've yeah, worked exactly. together before um, so that's interesting um, again I, I feel like we end up talking about him every time I'm on um, but if they've got endless amounts of cash and you want to build a club Eddie Howe's interesting but if you want to build a club you want to build something from almost from scratch to be a project that's going to go really well over a number of years someone like Ralph Rangnick would have to, would have to be spoken to, wouldn't he? Mm. This is the job he's done within the Red Bull organisation. Again, this is a job where you go in, you get a guy and say, right, here's an endless amount of cash, but how are we going to use it well? That's the, that's the difference. Everyone can spend a load of money. Man United's a great example. You can spend a load of money and not really build anything. So why don't you get someone like Rangnick in as a director of football and then let him build it from there? Because the sense I get from Newcastle is that they've done this deal it feels like there's a huge gap between the people at the top with the money and the guys on the pitch. That gap needs to be filled sensibly. Um, so that, that's what uh, I would sorry, do. Sorry, Mike, you, the, the names mm. you mentioned there rightly, Eddie Howe and Roberto Martinez. For me, again, just to my earlier point, th those seem like okay names, but those two managers, as we saw at Bournemouth and when Martinez was, was at Everton, and even at Belgium to some degree, defensively they're not sound I think they need to bring in a manager that defensively will stop them conceding goals and losing games just get to the summer I don't think you have to get a glitzy name in now just get the guy in now that's going to secure your position in the Premier League and those two managers for me yeah talk about great football and you know developing players that they don't need that right now 
they need someone who's going to come in and get clean sheets. Yeah. How about David Moyes? <laughs> um, well, yeah, and I mentioned that, you know, obviously flippantly, but um, he's really building something at West Ham. They've got their derby against Spurs on Sunday, Tony. Um, I suppose a lot of it will be how long they can keep Declan Rice. Um, but they are progressing, aren't they? They've boxed off, basically, the Europa League with three three wins out of three. Just, I mean, we were, the guys, my team and I were having a debate yesterday about, as ever, one of these kind of social things, who's the most underrated manager slash head coach in the Premier League? And um, David Moyes has to, has to, I'm current form, David has to be in that conversation. He's done an incredible job at West Ham. Um, and just common sense appears to have just, 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 just being a good coach, getting players on side, having a way of playing and the, the job that he's done and the way they play, they're, they're, they're such a handful. They are such a handful to play against. You know, Mikhail Antonio has just been an absolute revelation as a number nine, hasn't he? Um, obviously, Suchek and Rice in, those, in those, those midfield two are just great. And then the more creative players, I think Bowen was a really, really good recruit. Um, Fornals is doing well. Um, ben Rama's been great as well. And th- these are not these are not multi-million pound, well, football, everyone's a multi-million pound player. But these, these, are, these are sensible, progressive recruitments that they're making and with a, under, a, under a sensible, more progressive... Most, than most of whom from lower leagues as well. Most of their signings in the last couple of years have come yeah, from exactly. the Premier League. So, so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. Um, so, yeah, wonderful job. I suspect that David Moyes is perfectly happy where he is. Um, again, the challenge, like you say, is if, you know, Antonio is, is, does have his issues with injuries and is, I think, the wrong side of 30 now. Um, uh, Declan Rice... I don't know. I mean, if they're, if they're challenging for top four, I know, but if, if, a, if a bid for X amount of million comes in, people are... I mean, his star is definitely on the rise, isn't it? I think people mm-hmm. are starting to understand just how good and how, how capable Declan Rice is. But um, for now, David Moyes is doing a spectacular... You only need to look at how the other teams are doing in the Europa League or the Europa Conference League. They're not having it all their own way and West Ham just seem to be sedately strolling through at their own pace. It's very impressive. Well, speaking of which, um, Spurs... Um, nah. I'm not quite sure. I'm spur- uh, you know, and this is an open goal for you, Jordan, okay? <laughs> but, um, you know, what is the point of entering the 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 new conference, fielding a, a weakened team, you get beat, it defeats the object of qualifying in the first place. You know, Spurs are all, all over the place, aren't they? They are. I think they qualified almost by default. I don't think they were aspiring to try and get that 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 spot they got to get into the Europa League conference. I think they kind of just realised, oh, we've come by Arsenal. Oh, we've come in the top seven, I believe it was. Oh, actually, hang on a minute. That means that we're going to be in the Europa League conference. Um, and I think when you get a disjointed team that doesn't have the motivation of wanting to kind of go all out and win this competition, especially in this, this these early rounds, I think you get performances and results like you got with Spurs this week. Um, I mean, they'll probably limp their way to, to, to some way in this competition, but... Uh, the, the fact that you've got such a unorganised and a mixed bunch of, of of players in mixed form in a competition that they don't they're not enthused by, I think you're going to see a win, a loss, a win, a loss in in this competition. So the, the, the defeat was an embarrassing one. I mean, I don't care if you put your second team out, you do, you can't lose that game. You can't lose that game. But I think there's something deeper going on there at Spurs, which is which plays to 
Have they got the right players? Have they got the right manager? Um, and are they playing the right kind of football? And is the, how high is the motivation there at the moment? It feels like it's a really, and this is not me having a dig as an Arsenal fan, because believe me, we've got our own problems at the Emirates, trust me. Um, but I, it just feels like there's something deeper and, and underlying happening there at Spurs that I don't quite know what they're about. They got smashed in the North London derby by my mob, and then they go and beat Villa, and they won in the Premier League last week against uh, Newcastle. Yeah, and okay, Newcastle are not a very good team as well, but it just seems to be a little bit of a random mixed bunch of things happening there at Spurs, and I think that culminates in the results that you're seeing in in Europe for them as well. Fine, I just want to bring it all together if I could. Um, you know, we started by talking about the criticism that. Um, managers and coaches have to take. Um, what about players? I, I mentioned it only um, in the light of, of Arsenal's Ben White. You know, he admitted he doesn't watch football. He's loved playing it since he's a kid, but football, in essence, is, is simply a job to him. Cue outrage. Why? Discuss, please, guys. Tony. Um... I think football just is such a game just fueled and driven by passion from the start, isn't it? And I think all the fans just, we, you know, we care so much. We talked about, in fact, you know, when we talked, started this conversation talking about the abuse that coaches get, that for right or wrong is driven by actually passion that has gone beyond controllable, hasn't it? I think that's, that's, where, it, that's where it ends. Um, so I think football fans, football people almost take it as a personal insult when somebody who's earning a living from the game they love so much and earning a very good living from the game they love so much comes out and says something like that. Um, ben White can do it. I think, I think we all expect football, you know, we, we, we see people in the media, we all expect that everyone who's into football behaves like Jamie Carragher and just sits and goes home and watches 20 games of football and talks about it and then watches some more and then goes for a kick about and stuff. It's just not the way it is. He's not the first one. David Batty was, was, was like this years ago. Even as a Liverpool fan, I think Daniel Agger, who's now a coach, wasn't a huge fan of, of watching football. Benoit Sokoto, I think, at Spurs was battered for, for saying that actually mm. he doesn't even like football. <laughs> he doesn't even... I mean, that was maybe a little bit far to you know, like it. But yeah, there, there's been other players that have said it before. Sorry, Tony, sorry. But I, you know, I, I, no, but Jordan, I, to, to continue this point, I, I, f I felt actually let down by Patrick Vieira, who's, who's come out and basically asked to comment inevitably about Ben White. And he said he should show more commitment. Well, that's nonsense. It totally is. I, I loved it. I really loved it. And I, just to echo Tony's point, there's this perception that from football fans, or many football fans, that football people and footballers, live and breathe this thing every single day. And the reality for a lot of athletes, it's not even just, it's very, very big in tennis as well. I'm a big tennis fan. The amount of tennis stars that actually don't love tennis, they just happen to either be really good at it or there's much more of a parent-driven thing in tennis than other sports, but that's a separate thing. Um, they just do it because they're just good at it. Um, and this idea that, I mean, I remember when Oscar left Chelsea to go to China, he spoke about, he got massively battered by a lot of the British media for chasing the money without an understanding of people from certain parts of the world, in on the African continent, South America, 
these people, some of these people are feeding their families, extended families, and in the case of Oscar, a village. He has to earn as much money as he can, while he can, to support sometimes hundreds of people. Now, whether you believe in that or not is up to you, but the reality is that for some people, football is a job. It's only because we live in this 24-hour news cycle of football that we believe that football is the world. And if you don't, if you're not obsessed by football, you're not a real football fan. So I loved it. I really enjoyed hearing hearing what Ben White had said. And I agree with you, Mike. I think Patrick Vieira, Arsenal legend, I, I love the guy and always will. I thought he was wrong to condemn it as well because he was just feeding into this idea that if you're not watching football 23 hours a day, then, and you're playing it, then there's something wrong. And it's like, well, no, no, no. And my big concern and fear now, I'm not a massive big Ben, I'm not a massive Ben White fan personally, but my concern now is that whenever he doesn't play well, that'll be used as a stick to beat him with. Do you, do you know what I mean? If you watch more football, mm. you might know how to beat the, you know, defend the near post. So it's like, well, no, he had a bad game. <laughs> That's all it was. Um, so, but yeah, I, I liked it. The irony there, of course, the irony from Vieira's point of view is that it was um, Ben White's shot that was parried for Lacazette to get the equaliser in there. Yes, yes, yes. And actually, I, I actually I noticed that. I looked at Ben White's reaction um, after that goal went in, and that was a that was a guy he obviously cared. <laughs> yeah. because he's all because he's not going home and watching, you know. Era divisia highlights that evening doesn't mean he's not a, not a committed. Yeah. And, and I think just finally, sorry, Mike, I think finally, just briefly, it actually plays to our initial point about the obsession and the, the abuse that fans give give players. Sometimes it can be healthy. I think if you detach yourself from your job and if you're not part of the whole football bubble and you can just do your job in the day and do it to the best of your ability, but actually when you go home, switch off and turn off social media, not watch all the games and all the abuse and all the commentary and all the criticism and all the credit that you may that you may get as a player yeah well there's there's a rush to take offense isn't there there's a desperation to infer indulgence and indifference it's based on envy and ignorance which is never a good combination um i really admire ben white's honesty and individualism i've got no player no problem with a player treating football as a job doesn't mean they're ungrateful for the opportunity or unappreciative of the lifestyle the game gives them it means they're their own man. Now, regardless of what strangers thinks or what some supporters wrongly expect, I, you know, I say all power to Ben White. Do you agree with me? I hope so, but I doubt it. In the meantime, thanks to Jordan and Tony for their insight and thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. <laughs>